hell is a fixed place. And so those who say, well, you go to hell and you pay for your sin, kind of like a a heightened purgatory and then get out of hell, it denies everything that God says concerning the eternality of hell. Jesus in Mark 9, 48 described it as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is never, ever, ever quenched. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a special series of messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy over the last two years, and today is part two of his sermon, Have We Angered God? Pastor Carl is preaching from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and yesterday we looked at the eternal wrath of God. However, in today's sermon, we will be addressing the eschatological wrath of God before we enter into eternity. Please join us in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, as we continue. Do you remember that occasion when a rich man died and he died and went to Hades? Not because he was rich, but because he was an unbeliever. In Hades, the scripture says, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Hell is a fixed place. And so those who say, well, you go to hell and you pay for your sin, kind of like a a heightened purgatory and then get out of hell, it denies everything that God says concerning the eternality of hell. Jesus in Mark 9, 48 described it as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is never, ever, ever quenched. By the way, that's a quotation from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, which reminds us that the doctrine of eternal retribution is not simply a New Testament doctrine. It's taught in the Tanakh and the Old Testament. Sadly today, though, The doctrine of hell has virtually disappeared from evangelicalism, and no one noticed it. If you talk about hell, you're accused of being a fire and brimstone preacher. Well, listen, I believe in fire and brimstone. I also believe in grace and forgiveness, and we need to wed the two together because God does. But listen, hell is a real place. Now, sometimes people use it just as a curse word, or sometimes they use it to describe a horrible event that they're going through. Listen, my hat is off to some of these first responders and these doctors and nurses and people who work in the hospitals caring for the sick. And one recently was interviewed on the news, and she literally said, this virus is hell. We are living in hell. Now, she may not have been able to find a better word to describe the circumstances that she was going through, but I promise you, it is not hell. It doesn't even begin to compare. 
Now there's a second dimension in God's wrath beyond the eternal wrath of God. There is the eschatological wrath of God, the eschatological wrath of God. Eschatos is the Greek word for last, ology, the study of. And so when we speak of eschatology, we're speaking of the study of last things. And when we speak of that eschatological wrath, we're speaking of that wrath that will come upon the earth before Christ comes back and before ultimately we enter into eternity. Now here's the challenge. Every time there's a new earthquake or some natural disaster, or maybe you've been reading about the locusts that have been inhabiting countries and destroying the crops, or now this uh, pandemic virus, people will say, this is it. We are, we are experiencing the birth pangs that Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse. His return from heaven must be very near. And they say that this virus is a sign for the rapture. When in reality, there are actually no signs. There have never been any signs for the rapture. The Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment. And so the rapture is not a prophecy-driven event. Certainly the second coming is. And so people will read verses like Matthew, uh, like Luke 21, 11. Someone was recently interviewed on CNN and Fox, two different people actually, and they both use this verse to say that this pandemic virus was a fulfillment of what Jesus said. Luke 21, 11 is the Olivet Discourse, just written by Luke, not to the same detail. And it says, and there will be great earthquakes, Jesus said, and in various places, plagues, or you could translate it pestilences and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. There they say, there it is, a plague, a pestilence. That's what this virus is about. This is the birth pangs unfolding. Now, please understand, Jesus is speaking in the Olivet Discourse of a time of tribulation that is going to come unparalleled in all of human history. He said, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It's called in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 30, the time of Jacob's trouble. And one of the functions of the great tribulation period is A, to bring the Jewish people to faith. They're going to recognize Yeshua is the Messiah, but also to make them the light to the world, what God intended for them to be in the Old Testament. And they will bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, and then Jesus will come back. 144,000 Jews and two witnesses, not to mention an angel with the eternal gospel, will preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and the great commission will be fulfilled. Everyone will have heard. But understand, this eschatological wrath, known as the day of the Lord in Scripture, described in Matthew 24, In fact, why don't you turn to Matthew 24 for just a moment. It's described in Matthew 24, but then it is unfolded in great detail in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Now, there are 21 judgments that comprise the tribulation that becomes great tribulation. And they're given in sign, they're given in seals, they're given in trumpets, and they are given in the bold judgments. Let me just picture for you the overall schematic, though, in your mind as to how these events will unfold. 
as you can see on this next chart, uh, the next great event is the rapture of the church. And by the way, whether you believe the rapture is at the beginning of the tribulation or the end does not change what I'm going to describe here in just a few moments. But I believe the next great event is the church will be caught up. The tribulation will turn into great tribulation. There's an event in the middle of the seven-year period. It's known as the abomination of desolation. Jesus put it as a future event. And so over seven years, there will be wrath that will come upon the earth. And Jesus describes that wrath here in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. And it will conclude with his second coming. He will literally fulfill the promises to Israel. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. That's a prayer that will literally be fulfilled. His kingdom will come to earth. We went through six reasons why God just didn't end it all then, but he will rule and reign for a thousand years, and then we will enter into the eternal state. Now, with that said, and there are some amillennialists, they believe there is no millennial reign of the Messiah, that he won't rule for a thousand years. The only thing on their calendar is the second coming. They see the tribulation period as having already been fulfilled before 70 AD. And they have somewhat of a convoluted view of the end times because they have a wrong view of Israel. God is using Israel to fulfill his purposes. He used them to bring the coming of the Messiah the first time, and he will use them again to bring them back. But what I want you to see on this next chart as you follow along in Matthew is that there are parallels between what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse and what's described in Revelation, which would tell you right off that it's impossible to say that this virus is part of the birth pangs. Look at Matthew 24, 4, and 5. We're told that the birth pangs, um, which would represent the first seal, he says, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. So with the church having been raptured, there will be an open door for many deceivers, including the greatest of all deceivers, the Antichrist himself. The first horseman will come on a white horse, Revelation chapter 6, and he is the epitome of the uh, great deception that is going to come. Jesus goes on. Look at Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We studied in our exposition of the Revelation that this fulfills the second seal, the red horsemen of the apocalypse. There will be unparalleled wars upon the earth, so much so that the rumor in everyone's lips concerns yet another war. Then he moves us to the third trauma, the third seal, where there will be horrible famines and pestilence, Luke adds. And in various places, there will be famine. That's the black horse of famine. World hunger will be widespread during this time. This fourth horse, men will come on an ashen horse, a pale horse, and he'll bring with him famine, worldwide pestilence, and death. And so the fourth seal corresponds to Christ's earlier promise in both Matthew and in Luke's gospel where he references untold earthquakes and death and pestilence that will come by disease. This is what he said. Listen to it in Matthew 24, verses 7 and 8. And in various places there will be earthquakes. Verse 8, 
But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Please understand, Jesus puts the birth pangs during the time of the tribulation, and that's what you see unfolded here in the Revelation as well. So the birth pangs are not yet here, but I want to tell you once the water breaks, which I think the rapture will bring on, then the birth pangs will describe what these verses are unfolding. Look at verses 9 and 10 of of Matthew 24. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Then he adds in verse 13, but the one who endures the end, he will be saved. Those are the martyrs of Revelation chapter 6 who refused to take the mark of the Antichrist. Or Revelation 6 and 7 and 14 and throughout the Revelation, where they refuse to take the mark, they are willing to die for Jesus' sake. And so it perfectly corresponds with the fifth seal of Revelation 6. And at this point in the tribulation, this is just the first three and a half years that are being described. These are just the birth pangs that are going to escalate. And so to put this virus and the time frames of the birth pangs and to call it, well, this is part of the birth pangs, is really to take Scripture out of context. It will sell books. It will make for dramatic preaching but it's not faithful to the eschatological wrath that he describes in the Olivet Discourse and unfolds in great specificity in the book of Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Now, there's a third dimension to God's wrath beyond God's, and you might just bring up the rest of the chart if you would. Uh, There we go. There's cosmic changes, signs in the heavens. That's Revelation 6, the sixth seal, and then there's the worldwide preaching of the gospel. We have never really truly fulfilled the Great Commission, but it is going to be fulfilled during the time of the tribulation. The rapture is not dependent on it. That doesn't mean we fold our hands and say, well, God's going to do it anyway. Listen, we support over 300 missionaries monthly through this fellowship. Why? Because we believe it is our responsibility to take the gospel to the world. But what the church has not accomplished in 2,000 years, God is going to accomplish in that final segment of human history. So beyond eternal wrath and eschatological wrath, there is cataclysmic wrath. I want us to think about the cataclysmic wrath of God. You need to know, though, let me say parenthetically, that sometimes people define cataclysmic wrath as consequential wrath, or sometimes they will divide consequential wrath into a category all of its own. But to make consequential wrath a category all of its own, consequential wrath is argued, well, it's the law of sowing and reaping. You you reap that which you sow, and that's a true biblical principle, but it's rather simplistic because believers can also experience consequences for their sin, and it would certainly not be wrath. For he has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. So I think it's simply best to refer to cataclysmic wrath which doesn't happen very often in human history, but when it does happen, it happens as a reminder that God is involved in human history, that he doesn't rule this earth from afar, like the deists would argue. In fact, God takes responsibility for cataclysmic wrath. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God, I will gird you though you have not known me, 
that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is sovereign, he says in this verse, over calamity. You say, I have trouble with God being sovereign over calamity. Well, I'd have a lot more trouble if he wasn't sovereign over calamity. But sadly, many today, they live under the illusion that God is not really involved in the affairs of men and nations. Please understand, unlike that song decades ago, from a distance, God doesn't rule the earth from a distance. He rules it up close and personal. He is involved in the affairs of men and nations. And so God on occasion has brought cataclysmic wrath, be it Noah's flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We find another example where a rebel by the name of Korah with a couple of his friends led a rebellion against Moses and he and all of his followers were immediately sucked up, the earth opened up and they were swallowed up alive into hell. But take Noah's flood, for instance. It serves as a reminder of the atmosphere that will characterize the last days, because Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man would be like the days of Noah, and then the suddenness of the judgment that will come that people are not expecting. Listen to these words from 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own loss and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They're simply saying, according to the laws of nature, life is simply just one continuous, unbroken experience. We call that uniformitarianism. It's a false doctrine. They say nothing has changed. Nothing cataclysmic has ever happened from heaven. Our world continues with no interruption from God himself. And Peter, by the way, calls that willful ignorance in verse 5. He says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. If you have the NASB out in the margin, it gives you a more literal rendering. It says, for they are willfully ignorant of this fact. You know, some people are ignorant just because they're ignorant, but other people are ignorant because they are willfully ignorant. But the fact that they willfully ignore a good deal of evidence does not seem to bother them. These people, in essence, put out their own spiritual eyes. Why? Because they don't want to see. Because if they admit that God has been involved in human history before, then he can do it again, that Christ is coming back. And if Christ is coming back, that means that he is Lord, and that means that they are accountable. And so Jesus said they love their evil deeds. And so what do they do? They shut out the truth. They deny the truth. They don't know the truth because they don't want to know the truth. And they cannot find God for the same reason a thief cannot find a police officer. They don't want to find God Almighty. As we just read earlier in Romans chapter 1, these are people who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's willful ignorance. Look at verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. They willfully and deliberately ignore God's hand in creation. They deny the creative hand of God. And so a paleontologist who's a Christian 
can read the Bible and he will come to a different set of conclusions than the paleontologist who does not believe in the word of God. And God wants us to see that such people are willfully ignorant. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice by the word of God. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Peter is arguing to the inconsistency of the mockers in the last days by bringing two truths to our creation. The first is the creation that God as a direct creation of his hand made the world and secondly, the worldwide flood. First, he says that by the word of God, the Lord spoke this universe into existence, making it out of water and by water. He's telling us God is not far removed from his creation because God made his creation. God created the heavens and the earth by his word. This is why I find Tim Keller's argument so disgusting he calls himself a Christian apologist. He's an, apology for, an apologist for a lie, but not for the truth. To say that you can believe in theistic evolution, much like Pat Robinson does. And by the way, Ken Ham, I thought, did a fantastic job yesterday on his Twitter account denying the lie that Pat Robinson has been arguing for theistic evolution, that this world is billions of years old. By the way, I hope you appreciate Ken Ham and all that he's doing, and he is challenged as Christian ministries across the country, and if you have a little extra, this would be a good time to help that ARC ministry because it's closed down right now by the government. But what I want you to see is that according to Genesis, God spoke and it was created. For he spoke, Psalm 33, 9 says, and it was done and he commanded and it stood fast. The Bible is clear that God just spoke it into existence and it was finished. And so if you are ignorant of the past, you'll be ignorant of the future. If you're wrong on the origin of the species, you'll be wrong on the destiny of the species. And the devil knows that the key to the whole Bible is right there in the front door. Elohim. In the beginning created God the heavens and the earth. And that's why the devil is doing everything in his power to deny the first verse of the Bible but I said some people don't understand because they don't want to understand. Peter says they are willfully ignorant. And so Peter is basically saying, Mr. Skeptic, Mr. Mocker, Mr. Scoffer, you who say God has never intervened before, he has, this world is a direct creation of his hand. His argument is plain. And to embrace theistic evolution or evolution just say it, God is a liar, his word is not true because that is what you are saying. But he proceeds with a second illustration reminding us that God does indeed intersect with his creation. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, verse six, through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. Talk about a cataclysmic event. In fact, the word flooded is a, is a Greek word, excuse me, kataluzo. We get our word cataclysmic from it. That's the word that's translated flooded here, the verb. It's an expression of God's cataclysmic wrath. 
In fact, in this same book, in 2 Peter chapter 2, he spoke of another cataclysmic event. How God condemned, 2 Peter 2, how he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Now, in spite of Abraham's intercessory prayer and Lot's last-minute warning, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah perished in fire and brimstone. Did they think this judgment was going to come? I know for a fact they didn't think it was going to come any more than the people in Noah's day thought it was going to come. How do I know that? Because Jesus said they didn't expect it. In reference to Lot's day, just like Noah's day, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. He just described the days of Noah. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Up to the very last minute, the people in Sodom thought, everything is fine, nothing is going to happen and then judgment came and they were all destroyed. So in reducing Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, Peter said this is an example. God doesn't destroy every Sodomite city, Sodomite city. He did it only once, just like he flooded the world only once. And he'll never do that again, he said. But it is an example that God is involved in this world. Now listen, this wrath is not cataclysmic wrath. And so you can eliminate that category. So there is eternal wrath. There is eschatological wrath of the tribulation. There's the cataclysmic wrath that is a constant reminder that God is involved up close in world history. But fourth, there's the wrath of abandonment. The wrath of abandonment. Sometimes this is called forsaking wrath. And it's the wrath that our country today is experiencing. Now, whether this virus is representative of that wrath. We'll speak about that to a moment. But I want you to know that the wrath of abandonment today is happening not just in our country, but across the world. And this kind of wrath can happen on an individual, or a society, or a nation, or a world. Turn to Psalm 80. Let me give you an Old Testament example to begin with. Psalms, if you're new to the Bible, it's about dead center in most of your Bibles. And go to Psalm 80. The book of Psalms is divided by God into five different books. When you come to Psalm 80, it's book three. Psalms 73 to 89 uh, comprise book three of the Psalms. And these Psalms describe the supernatural intervention in the midst of difficult circumstances. God doesn't just classify these books randomly. Well, here's a good place to divide it. He, he did it the way he did for a purpose. And here in book three, 11 of those Psalms is written by a very godly man by the name of Asaph, a man who walked with God, who deeply cared about the things of God. And he's really a patriot of sorts. Look at Psalm 80 and let's read uh, verses seven and eight. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Now, if you've studied the Old Testament, you know that one of the symbols that God uses to describe Israel is that of a vine. It's used by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea of the people of Israel. Please join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Have We Angered God? If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 787 
1-800-242-7478 and requesting program HAG-020. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.